This is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a programme about globalisation and the effects it has had on Ireland and other countries around the world over the last 50 years or so. In each programme we interview a person from another country or with strong connections to another country or countries to get their unique perspective on globalisation as it has affected them both personally and professionally. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, a sprinkling of business and an overlay of personal experience both from me and from my interviewees from around the world. Today we will be speaking with Kevin McHugh, founder of the boutique consultancy firm Priory GRC Consulting, which specialises in all matters related to governance, risk management and compliance. Kevin has over 24 years internal experience in governance, compliance and risk management and 15 years experience as a company director. Kevin is also an active speaker internationally, charity fundraiser for AidLink that works to improve the lives of people living in poverty in East and West Africa. Kevin is also an international chess player, something that we'll have to find out more about presently. So I'm delighted to have Kevin join us here in the studio today to talk to us about his international experience, his business, and to get his perspective on where the process of globalisation is heading as we move towards a new decade. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you very much for being here with us today. It's a pleasure. Uh, so, Kevin, tell us a little bit about your career start and your professional background. So, where do you where do you come from? Who is Kevin McHugh? Okay, so I'm from Dublin. Um, I, I trained as a chartered accountant. Um, I qualified in the in the yeah, mid eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, went off to the states for a couple of years after I, I've qualified, and then came back to work for another uh, six years in in uh, in an accountancy firm again. Um, I, after I did that, I moved into financial services, first with the stock exchange, which at the time was setting up as a, a new independent stock exchange mm-hmm. uh, in the in the mid 1990s, uh, and that was a fascinating time because uh, we, we had 24 people and a very small amount of money, and had to persuade international um, investors that they could believe us and they could trust us. Uh, so, so happily that that succeeded, and uh, the, the stock exchange um, went, went and went on its way. Um, I, I stayed with them for four years during the, the, the setup phase, and then moved into into AIB. Um, I moved. I was with AIB for twenty years, in a variety of different areas in their stockbroking business, in their capital markets area, uh, and then as they restructured in uh, in in other divisions as as they as they moved into the uh, the uh, the to the late to the late zeros, and then the early um, the, to two thousand and twelve and two thousand thirteen. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved at that stage to the Irish uh, Irish side of a Canadian bank, uh, working in um, working in compliance and risk management, uh, and then about eighteen months ago, uh, I set up uh, Priory GRC Consulting, and Priory GRC Consulting was really trying to do for myself what I had done for financial services companies for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And as you tr- transition then from being, I, I guess, in those earlier roles, you were an employee, and now you have a business, so you've become a business person of sort or an entrepreneur how did that affect your 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 thinking or did it in terms of uh, work and life and money and all of those types of things well um, I, I suppose taking those in in, in, in reverse order mm. uh, in terms of life it gives increased uh, flexibility uh, so you know one of the things that goes with working for international services companies is you tend to be working long hours um, yeah, you're still working long hours working for yourself, but you can choose which long hours you're working. Mm-hmm. And if something comes up on the um, on the family side or on the personal side that needs your attention, well, then you give it that attention. And that's something that you didn't have the the flexibility to um, uh, to do before. 
Um, um, on the on the financial side, um, it really depends on on uh, on what the growth path is. Uh, certainly in the initial stages, it's it's hard work, and it's not it's hard work for less reward than, than when you're working for at a senior level within uh, within financial services. Um, my expectation is that trajectory over time is going to change uh, because. Um, where you're successful yourself in in um, in pitching yourself for for providing services to the companies that I was working for, and other companies of a similar nature, uh, it's it's rewarding. So it really comes down to the the pace of growth of the business, uh, on what the the income line will be. Yeah, I actually I asked the same question of a friend of mine who went into business some years ago, and he said to me, um, "I sleep a lot less, but I have much more fun when I'm awake." And I think that's a very good <laughs> summary. Does that resonate yeah, with yeah, you? It does. It does. <laughs> Okay, so in in Priory, uh, the consultancy business, what are the the key services and capabilities that you provide? Okay, so if you take the three areas uh, separately, if you take governance, risk management, and, and compliance, um, governance is all about how how um, companies relate to their stakeholders, whether those are shareholders, whether they're employees, whether they're uh, government agencies, and there are a load of codes that that set out the detail of how you might do that. But fundamentally, it's around how well you do that. Uh, one of the services we offer is to do a diagnostic on that very thing. How successful are you in structuring yourself so that, that, that you're likely to succeed in relating successfully to all of your, your range of your stakeholders? So that's the governance side of the, of the practice. The risk management side of the practice is about the internal rules that, that banks and other financial services companies have for how they do their business. So, for example, if I, if I go out and, and I want to take out a car loan for, I don't know, 30,000 and you want to take out the same car loan, why might they say no to one of us and yes to the other? Um, and there would be a pile of rules that basically set that. Um, if they have a, if they have capital in, how will they get a return on that capital, and what will they do? And again, there'll be another pile of rules that deal with that. So that's the risk management side. It's about the internal rules that that, that people set up to do their business uh, successfully. And the compliance side is the other side. The compliance side is about uh, laws and about regulations, and it's about how you comply with those and how you structure yourself so that you make sure that you do so. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, you know a lot of that stuff is quite complex it's uh, rule based it's kind of dry yeah. from say from an entrepreneurial point of view yeah. in terms of um, thinking about those things in the in the strategic sense so when you're talking to a business person uh, what what's the strategic importance of, of of those things and what are the kind of business outcomes that that, that you know that that light their fire that they would get out of paying attention to this type of thing and putting uh, resource and commitment into it yeah, one of the one of the big um, the first thing to say is financial services is an industry that's changing very very uh, very rapidly. It's changing as a result of technology. It's changing as a result of um, of the of the pace at which business is um, is conducted because of the introduction of of, of technology. Um, it's it's an industry which internationally. Um, has broken trust in many cases mm-hmm. and needs to repair that trust. And that, 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 that change in trust is being reflected in, in an increased regulatory burden um, on, on all of those, those industries. Um, so when a, when a, whether it's an existing company in Ireland or whether it's somebody that's coming into Ireland, one of the things they need to do is get, get governance, compliance and risk right. Um, and, and the smarter businesses realise that they need to do that. So strategically, what's the difference between a, a what's one of the differences between uh, companies that succeed and succeed quickly, and those that are are much slower to that that table? Um, well, it, it's it's how well you do governance, risk, and compliance. Uh, so so certainly, um, managing directors and and senior managers within the businesses I'm dealing with, they get that. 
and they get that, they can sleep a little bit easier mm-hmm. if they can get a help in those areas. Okay. And, and your ideal clients, um, who, who are they? What are they like? And what, what sectors are they in? Okay. They're, they're pr- primarily in, in, in financial services, but not exclusively. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of the other, um, some of the, and, and largely with an international aspect to the, uh, to the business. Um, but, but not exclusively. So, for example, charities are an area uh, where um, there's, there's, a, there's a heavy demand for, in particular, the governance aspect of the, uh, of the business. Universities, uh, some government agencies um, are, are, are equally, um, there's, there's a demand in those areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the primary focus would be financial services, but by, by no means the, the exclusive area. Okay. And uh, Ireland in... In comparison to other jurisdictions, where do we stand on the one hand in terms of those capabilities and um, what do we have to offer in terms of our, 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 our competence in that, in that sphere or say for companies coming to set up here? I, I know because we're a common law jurisdiction that we're, we're attractive to many companies. Um, so those two things in terms of where do we stand and what do we have to offer? Yeah, so I mean, uh, we, we we stand well, mm. um, and we stand well in part because of what you mentioned is a common law jurisdiction. Uh, but the other the other big difference is is people. Um, we have a we have a young educated workforce. Um, uh, it's an English speaking workforce. Uh, it's an entry point to 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 Europe for com- com- companies which are coming from outside Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of those things are are pluses. In terms of what we need to do, um, the biggest the biggest single thing is upskilling to deal with the pace of, of change in, in technology. Um, and it's an area where, despite the fact that technology nationally is the strength, um, the, the ability to get on tap sufficient numbers of people who stay up to date um, is a challenge. Um, and it's a challenge in particular when you move away from... My, 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 my eldest son, for example, is 20. Uh, that's ideal. You know, guys from, from you know, 15, 14 to 20... They're, they're, they stay up in, in, in touch as a matter of, of course, and 20 years is that. And that's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those people that are 20 years later have no choice. They, they have to stay up to date. Uh, so, so upskilling um, both of the of people coming into the workforce and people who've been in the workforce for, for quite some time is a, is, a, is a significant issue. One of the areas we need to, um, we need to up our game is on the education system. Because whether you're talking about second level or whether you're talking about uh, third level, um, the you know, my, I have a son that's just on the leaving. Um, the leaving he did is broadly similar to the one I did many decades ago. Um, the world he's dealing with is not. <laughs> that's true. That's very true. Um, interesting question. If Britain exits the EU as is anticipated and exit, exits it in a, in, a, in a drastic way, where does that leave us uh, in terms of being the only major, I guess, English-speaking common law jurisdiction inside the European Union? Is that a plus for us in this in this sphere? It's a plus in the short term, but in the long term, if you look at the complications that come out of a messy uh, a messy exit, uh, there there will be a lasting implication from that. Everything from contracts which are potentially unenforceable uh, through to difficulties in getting movement of people across across boundaries. Um, through to just a general slowdown in economic activity. Mm-hmm. So I think I think the point you're making is absolutely valid that in the short term, uh, there are over 150 applications with the central bank for licenses, uh, which are which are essentially Brexit hedges, um, and that's be, that's because in the short term. Um, these businesses need to go somewhere and Ireland is attractive to come to. Uh, but in the medium term, 
if there's a messy Brexit, uh, financial services will not be immune from that. Okay, and perhaps I, I've been thinking lately that maybe the unforeseen consequences that nobody knows about that are lying in there buried will be like a slow burn and they'll kind of be discovered over time. Do you? Yeah, no, I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, because I think that a lot of the focus on, on what happens after Brexit is focusing on the first maybe six or 12 months. Yeah. Uh, but I actually think the consequences will be much more enduring than that. Yeah, we were talking on the radio this morning, they were talking about a situation where you have non-EU citizens married to UK nationals who live in the Republic of Ireland. So there's no issue with the resident status of the UK national, but the spouse has a problem and they're receiving letters from our state now warning them about their situation in the future. And that seemed to me like a totally unsuspected and unforeseen consequence. Yeah, it's not one I was aware of. Yeah, there you go. Um, so your inter- the international aspect of your business, w- w- where did that come from? When did it start? Was it always there? No, well, the first thing to say is that um, financial services is dominantly an international game anyway. Um, but the, the international areas where I'm involved in are in the, in the, in the UK and the, in the, and the US. Um, and in both cases, it has come down to picking a partner to help me to enter those markets. Um, and what I'm looking for is, is firstly, um, penetration in those markets. But secondly, I'm looking for something that will complement the, the skills that I can, I, can, I can bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And in doing business overseas, although from what you've said, it's mostly in English-speaking jurisdictions with, with similar legal systems, if not the same legal systems. What kind of um, uh, cultural challenges have you, have you encountered or do you encounter? Yeah, well, the, first, the, the key thing I'd say in relation to cultural challenges, and uh, perhaps I'm going back to my ADE days rather than to, uh, to the, the prior GRC side, mm. is that you really need to you really need to get a handle of them very quickly. Um, if I if I take for example two North American um, countries, Canada and the US, um, you, you might think that well, I mean they're going to be broadly the same. In fact, they're anything but. Um, you know, I, I went into a meeting in a, with a with a Canadian uh, bank. And uh, we were taking a decision on, on whether we would or would not enter a particular market. The person chairing the meeting went around 16 people around the table. And at the end of it, uh, he went back to the person sponsoring the proposal by saying, well, I think you've got the, be it the, the mood of the meeting. If you had the same uh, meeting with a US person, there would not be 16 people in the table. And that would not be the summary you'd get of the decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very different uh, business cultures. Absolutely. Any, other, any f- funny anecdotes from... Yeah, well, it's actually a personal one. Um, I um, I went out to Australia um, um, a few years ago with uh, with AIB when we, we had an office out there, and my sister has been out there for the last twenty uh, something years. There's a place called Hyde Park in in Sydney, and there's an there's a an interpretive centre for immigration there, and it's it's really done well. I mean, if you're going in, you need a strong uh, a strong stomach. Um, <laughs> So I was just off the plane at nine o'clock in the morning and I couldn't get into the hotel until the afternoon. So I went, I went around the centre and I went under a tree to get a cup of coffee outside and I suddenly discovered the tree talking to me and I thought, oh my God, I shouldn't have had that second <laughs> glass of wine. Um, but to make matters worse, it was talking to me in my sister's voice. Um, so I met her for dinner that evening and I said, well, Siobhan, you're not going to believe this, but this is what happened. And she laughed at me and she said, no, no, that in fact was me. So what had happened was that Firstly, the the, uh, the tree was had a mic that was uh, motion activated. So when you sat under it, it was going to respond. And she had done a um, a ten minute program on immigration for ABC. 
um, which is how I happened to come across her voice. But when you knew nothing about this, and suddenly the tree started talking to you, you began to you began to wonder what the hell was going on. <laughs> so uh, bro- broadening things out a bit now. So you know, you know, we've been in a period of ex- the expansion of globalization. I'm talking now about uh, probably since you and I were, were were children. So from the time of about 1970 forward, and um, there's been huge increase in global trade and globalization and all of the. Um, changes in transport, in regulation, in uh, technology that have facilitated that. We seem to be in a period now since about 2015-16 of a kind of kickback against the globalisation with Brexit, protectionism, rising nationalism and all of this type of thing. What's, what's your take on it? Where do you think we are? Where are we going? Are we stalled? Is this a blip? What, what, what's your view on it? Um, I'd be surprised if we go back to the sort of thing that we were talking about in the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, but I would also be surprised if there's a sustainable period uh, where you see um, America talking about America first and where you talk about broadly similar trends in, uh, in the UK and France and in, uh, in, in Germany and Italy to, to some extent. And then those would only be examples. There are other examples you could talk about as well. Mm-hmm. I think for... Um, uh, in in relation to trade generally, I don't think you're going to um, you're going to see a move away from um, companies which are playing internationally. I think that's that's too too big a, a part of the of the market. But I think what you will see is that there will be an increased emphasis on those companies playing nationally as well as nationally, and indeed regionally in some mm-hmm. of the, some of the larger markets. So I think if you take um, take 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 for example um, some of the tech companies. You know, when you look at the offering that they're they're putting into um, into some of the Asian markets, it's 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 bound on the same technology as they're doing they're doing locally. But there's a there's a local there's a local angle to everything they're doing in the marketing and in the way that they they put they, they put things forward. And I think that trend is going to continue. I think the one size fits all is is um, is going to be challenging to be sustained. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting as well when you look at the global trade figures of the recent years. They've probably uh, stagnated in the aggregate, uh, and if you look at the long distance trade, they've actually decreased. But the inter the, the trade within regions, say within the European region, or within the North American region, within the uh, Asian region, have actually increased. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of hiding, a uh, kind of a shift in the patterns, sure. really, isn't it? Um, and, I, and I guess Ireland is one of those countries that's benefited greatly from the process through foreign direct investment and, and other things, multinational manufacturing here, particularly in the 90s and the early 2000s. So where do you see Ireland's success lying in the future? And what does our government need to do? And what do our business owners need to do? Yeah, so I mean, if you look at the areas that we've been, sectorally, some of the areas that we've been very strong on, we've been very strong in pharma, uh, we've been uh, very strong in technology, we've been very, very strong in, in high tech, uh, more recently we've been strong in, in, um, in professional services. Um, and, and I think we have the potential to, to stay strong in all of these areas, uh, but they are changing markets in each of those, and it's going to be important that as those markets change, uh, that we respond, uh, we respond accordingly. I think that if I was to take any one of those and if I was to look forward over the next um, 20 years or so, what would I expect? Um, I think it's well known that, um, and, and indeed it's not a recent trend, that uh, if you take somebody who's yeah, 18, 20, 22 today, they're not looking at 40 years of working for one place. No. Indeed, they're not looking at four years of working <laughs> for one place. Um, so, so, you know, portfolio careers and portfolio careers which are very, very different uh, than, than, than you and I would have had are willing to become increasingly common. And what goes with that is an adaptability mm. and skills that, that 
um, that certain skills will have a premium. So creativity, um, collaboration, um, problem solving, um, all of those sort of things um, are, are, are increasingly important. Technology, uh, the pace at which technology is changing uh, creates a real challenge for, uh, for, 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 frankly, people of every age. Um, if you take it that um, you have a phone there on your desk, um, I don't know how old that is, but if it's anything more than about 18 months, it's almost certainly out of date. Mm-hmm. Um, and that period is shrinking all the time. Um, so, so responding to that and, and dealing with that within the, uh, within, within, with, with upskilling and within our education system is a challenge. And it's a challenge where we're starting from a low base uh, because what we have at the moment, at, we have a probably an underfunded uh, third level sector and we have a second level se- uh, sector which uh, rewards 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 rote learning to be honest mm-hmm. um, and doesn't reward the sort of things which I've just mentioned there's been some work done at the junior cert level which has, has pushed this in the right direction at leaving cert level there's still a lot of work to be done uh, so continuing that and getting to a point where we have a much more dynamic workforce and one which is um, which on an ongoing basis is up to date and, and pushing water downhill instead of uphill mm-hmm. uh, those will be important aspects and then the other aspect of this is that we need on an ongoing basis uh, to ensure that we are uh, sustaining our people advantage and that we are uh, keeping Ireland as an attractive uh, competitive location mm. Do you see ever I sometimes think about this do, do you ever see a point maybe 20 years 30 years in the future where people won't go to school anymore they, they'll do other things and the state will be a kind of a certifier rather than a, a provider of education I hadn't, I hadn't foreseen that. It's an interesting concept. Because it's getting totally outpaced by, by change and increasingly so, as you, as yeah. you refer to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have to say the way I thought about that to, to date had been around um, the educational system adopting to that. Yeah. But it's an interesting question. Can they do it? It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's crossed my mind a couple of times, but it's a kind of a mad idea, really, isn't it? But we'll, we'll, we'll see. So then maybe we'll change tack uh, a little, because I know you've got kind of a few interesting things on the other side, outside of work. So you, you mentioned um, uh, chess. Yes. So you, you're an international chess player. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I got involved in chess when I was in, uh, just, 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 just joined and in, in 13 years old and... In, in secondary school mm-hmm. and uh, and I was I was lucky enough when I was 15 or 16 uh, to get invited to a schoolboy international tournament and uh, it's taken off from there I'm, I'll be going off to my third European championships in uh, in November and uh, it's it's fun it's, it's fun. when you go outside of Ireland though you discover just how small Ireland is in the chess world <laughs> uh, because you can be a big fish in a small poodle but uh, so you, you, just, you, you represent Ireland then at these I do yeah and, and there's a qualification here in Ireland for that is there, there is yeah okay yeah. And, and you've what you've represented Ireland what many times it depends what level you're talking about at school by level it was 30, 35, 36 times and it's about the same again since then at another level okay and where is the game at now in terms of standing up to AI and this type of thing well it's interesting in 1981 um, there was a, a guy called Korchnoy who then was the number two in the world and mm-hmm. he came over and he played six um, Irish players of whom I was one so I, I was fortunate enough to beat him so I got the I got the then strongest computer in the world and uh, as my prize and I was a lot stronger than it um, if you take the strongest computer in the world it would be a very good match for the world um, champion mm-hmm. uh, and in fact um, well the world champion would probably hold his own against it but anybody else in the world 
uh, would would struggle. Mm. And that's before you get to ones which are done for research purposes. Yeah. Uh, when you get into the ones that are done for research purposes, you're, you're just in you're 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 stronger than anybody who's playing chess professionally. Really. There you go. Another interesting aspect you mentioned is um, fundraising work for charities in in Africa. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So AidLink is a ch- is a charity which um, which in, in invests in in a small number of countries in in Africa, uh, Ghana, Uganda, um, Kenya. Uh, would be uh, would be particular areas, uh, but if you take one of those, I mean, Kenya is a is a middle income um, African country, mm-hmm. uh, but the parts that we're dealing with is is not. I mean, the part we're in has a ten percent literacy rate. Uh, you're you're eight you're eight eight hours away from Nairobi, and half of that over dirt tracks that would make the 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 Rigakuri look like a a motorway. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, we 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 we've been involved in there for 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 a very a very long time. And uh, the way we do it is that we partner with with local African agencies, and the reason we do that is is going back to your your question about culture. Um, if you take people that are predominantly coming from the south of Dublin, and they go into a remote part of of Kenya, uh, where uh, tribal um, tribal life is is the life, and where literacy is very very low, your ability to change things is very very limited. Mm-hmm. But if you can empower some of the local um, agencies that have um, a degree of education and a degree of capability. And if you can upskill that, 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 those agencies uh, to provide the aid um, on your behalf, you can get much better bang for your buck. Uh, so that's the road that we've chosen to go. Mm. It's interesting as well, Africa today. Africa is like the, the new frontier in a way. And I think what a lot of people in the West don't realise is the huge advances that have been made, particularly on, on, on the healthcare side and life expectancy in Africa and that Africa in many ways is perhaps poised for a brighter uh, future. So how, how do you see Africa's future economically, socially? And what are the contrast between the different parts? Because it's a huge place. Yes, it is a huge place. I mean, if you take, I mean, if you take some of the high income areas, if you take Algeria, if you take Morocco, if you took, um, um, if you took um, Algeria, Morocco um, and, and uh yeah, take, 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 take those three. Take South Africa um, as as higher um, um, higher income areas. Um, they 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 have uh, tremendous prospects. Uh, the challenge facing many of the other areas is uh, is that despite the fact that they have massive um, massive levels of natural resources, they also have natural levels of of corruption, and they have uh, they have um, massive levels of inequality. Um, and it's, those are proving intractable uh, problems. Mm. So I think what you're going to find in Africa is that there will be pockets, um, and they will be sizable pockets. I mean, I didn't mention Egypt, for example, which would be another in the same category. Um, they, they they have tremendous prospects. Um, I think the areas that have that are that are rich but with high levels of um, of corruption and high levels of inequality have much bigger, greater challenges to um, to realise their potential. Okay. Uh, and, and where can people just to, because we're getting into the into the final uh, stages now so where, where can people find out more about you more about your, your thinking more about your business your work and so on yeah so my, my email address is, is uh, uh, priory GRC consulting mm-hmm. at gmail.com and that's the that's the best way to get in touch with me uh, if, if you look on LinkedIn um, under Kevin McHugh uh, you'll, you'll also see uh, some of some of the articles which I've um, which I've which I've which I've written and uh, and and some of those, uh, and uh, absolutely happy to uh, to explore any of the themes we've talked about, or indeed the services of my businesses, with any of your listeners. 
Excellent. Uh, as always, Kevin, we always end up getting uh, beaten by the clock. It's been uh, a pleasure speaking to you today and I wish you every success for the future, both personally and professionally. Many, many thanks. Thanks, Patrick. So it just remains for me uh, to say many thanks again to our guest, Kevin McHugh of Priory GRC Consulting. Thanks to Peter on sound and to all of you, our listeners, until the next time. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.